0: Hi, Keith. How are you?
1: I, I'm good. I'm good this morning.
0: Good. So, Keith Wiley is an environmental activist from Nelson, BC, lives very close to me, and it's a good friend. So, thank you for coming today to the podcast. I'm happy to be and, here. And, Keith, you were for many years in the climate area, doing a lot of things.
1: I've been very concerned for since at least 2006, 2007. Yeah. But since before that, actually. In two thousand and seven, uh, my daughter, my my six-year-old daughter, and I responded to a challenge from David Suzuki to do a short video about what I would do if if I were prime minister. I wrote it. She read it into the camera. We posted it to YouTube. It, it peaked uh, a National Post columnist so much he called her Little Miss Apocalypse. Why that? Well, she was talking. She was talking about the, the threat to our planet from the tar sands specifically. And that tended to bother a lot of Canadians at the time. What happened then at that time? uh well, things just kept on going. the tar sands just kept on going bigger and and we're still building pipelines to increase the size of the tar sands.
0: Say more, please for the people they don't know what is it Tar well, sand and
1: oh the oh and why oh, why well, is it so dangerous? Um, Oh, it's, it's not very complicated. The tar sands is one of the largest known uh, fossil fuel deposits in the world, uh, next probably to uh, some tar sands in Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. And it's a huge amount of fossil fuel, uh, but you have to cook it out of the ground. It's in a tar mixed with sand and you cook it out of the ground with uh, tremendous amounts of natural gas and water, uh, usually to create a bitumen, which is a thick slurry that they want to pipe away to refineries in Texas mostly, Uh, uh, but it's some of the dirtiest oil in the world because you have to put so much energy in to extract it from the sand. Since 1990, Canada has been saying we're going to reduce emissions and our emissions have stayed about the same. overall. We've been reducing our emissions in our in our lives all across Canada, but the tar sands has grown in emissions enough to make up all the difference. So we're 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 no farther ahead than we were in 1990, largely because of the big mining, and in situ mining in the tar sands.
0: So this is the first time you realized the connection with climate change.
1: Oh, I knew no, it was before that. Uh, but I I was living in Edmonton at the time. And uh, it was, in fact, the tar sands are Canada's uh, main burden in terms of climate change. It's the, 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 what we have to contribute to the world is to shut the tar sands down. And that's how we can help fight the climate crisis. And I've been aware of that close to 20 years.
0: Since you're here uh, for a while, uh, is it change for you? Was there a moment that you realized that climate change is very uh, dangerous and serious threat?
1: I don't, Do you remember I, that moment? I don't remember, because I've actually been an environmentalist my whole life. When I was a teenager, I did a report on, uh, for some reason, I decided to do a report on General Motors. I, I took an early dislike to automobiles. It was in the 60s and the early 70s, and uh, the smog in Los Angeles was terrible, and air pollution was uh, a big concern. And I helped found a small environmental organization at that time, but I did a, a school report, a high school social studies report on General Motors, and realized that well one of the things I found out was that General Motors and exxon and Exxon oil had conspired to get the railway tracks the tram tracks removed from Los Angeles so that people would have to drive cars instead and I, I recognized that the the cars were just wow. unsustainable on the planet when I was sixteen so uh, that if you want to know where my awareness started, that was when it started. Uh, it was in the very first wave of modern environmentalism in North America.
0: Wow, that's that's many years ago, and it is now actually.
1: It's a, yeah, it's just a, it's it's fifty years ago.
0: Maybe you're from the first people to realize there's a problem.
1: Oh, no, there were lots before me, too. But uh, yeah, I was the first person I knew. I met some college professors there in southern Alberta who had similar concerns. They were the the only people I found who had similar concerns were these uh, pro- professors from the local college.
0: Was, the, was this concern personal, like you felt like s- smelling the smoke for you? N- How did you understand there is a problem, you know? No, I guess other people at the same time were excited to have cars. Oh yeah,
1: and I was too. And I was too. I, in fact, uh, at the same time, I I got my driver's license, and and having a car was a rite of passage for a young Canadian man. And if you wanted to have a, a great date with a young Canadian woman, you needed a car. So that was that was. <laughs> yeah. These were priorities, you know. So. But I was conflicted and uh, I, I got a driver's license and by the time I was 21 I let my driver's license lapse and I and I didn't get a driver's license again for a number of years after that because I realized that cars are unsustainable in my political upbringing with my mother who was quite critical of the injustices in society and was quite critical of our society uh, and I just carried that critique over to the environmental side and I said clearly we can't be living this way on the planet. And I believe I was right. I, I believe I, my understanding at that time was essentially correct. We were overshooting the planet's carrying capacity for us. And if we'd stopped then, if we'd started putting on the brakes then, we'd be way better off now. But now we're in, in deep doo-doo, so we didn't stop then. We kept on growing and building and burning.
0: How, how would you describe the problem today?
1: Oh, I think it's existential. I describe it what I'm my most gloomiest. I describe it in my concerns about the lives of my children and grandchildren. That's that's. I I really I, I really I really wonder what the world is going to happen. My kids are like this. They think things are going to continue on the way they've been. And that's sort of. You, your reality, you expect it to keep going in a similar sort of direction, but people all around the world have experienced massive disruption and change in their lives because of wars or calamities. We haven't. Since the second world war, things have been pretty smooth riding for Canada, mostly. Uh, no wars here, yep. not even a lot of really big civil upset or, or violence and no big, until now since 1918 no big health crises until now but this this health crisis shows us that the world can change fast and it could turn on you fast and most people in the world know that but we don't we don't really believe it we think it's just alarmist i feel like the guy carrying a a sign down the street street with an old white beard and a long cloak and a big sign saying the end is near because it could be
0: I feel like it should be very frustrating to see that since since you're 16 years old and things getting worse and worse and worse all the time, like you're shouting and going with this sign, but nobody listened, like in a way, it feels like nobody listened because the industry keeps going.
1: It's true. Yeah.
0: So how how does it feel to see that? Yeah. What is the experience?
1: Um. I, I I tend to avoid thinking about it too much, but it it's true that my whole life I would have to say that things have been marching in a in a poor direction for us, and really directed by the big economic powers, and the wealth and the corporations for their their interests, not for the planet's interests, and it's it's only in the last five years. And really, since I came to the Kootenays in a way, I realized that the threat of wildfire, uh, a massive wildfire, which is sort of the local manifestation of massive climate change, extremely dry forests in the summer, and not enough moisture and the the forecast, the longer term environmental projection for these forests, these beautiful, huge uh, cedar rainforests in southern BC is that they're all going to be burned. And uh, this is going to be a much drier and sagebrushy, sort of like the Okanagan kind of place. So uh, it, that, that's sort of the scariest, most imminent here in my place, um, fear. And, and it, it is a real fear in BC.
0: I remember two, two years ago, or it was three years ago, that was a huge it, fire here? It, there
1: were, 2017 and 2018 were bad years and very bad smoke and the smoke was very intense here and the th- the threat of fire in n- neighboring forests or on the mountains around us here in Nelson was quite intense and quite frightening and uh, our property mm-hmm. values went down you couldn't sell a house in Nelson in the summer of 2018 because people were afraid to move to a place that might burn up. We were named one of the most vulnerable cities to wildfire in, in Canada and in BC. Cities of this size. I, I, I take it seriously because I forget what year it was, but it's about uh, 15 years ago. I was driving across Alberta one time, driving home to my home in Edmonton. And uh, there was a huge wind coming from the east, uh, really in the summertime. And it was very odd and it was a strange weather formation. And when I got home, I found out that there'd been a large forest fire just east of the town of Slave Lake. The fire had blown in embers from a fire, uh, I think that was like uh, six or 10 kilometers east of the town and burned much of Slave Lake down, including the public library in the middle of the town. And that happened years before the fire fire in Fort McMurray. But it was a real uh, sign that nature can strike back uh, and the the force and power is unstoppable when it, when, when, when it goes really big like that. And that was a cautionary tale. And it was particularly the public library in the middle of the town where, you know, there's not that many trees around. It's in an urban area in Slave Lake was a small city, uh, uh, probably about the size of Nelson actually. And these kinds of buildings burned down. It was quite a shock.
0: Yeah, yeah sounds like that. Keith, would you say that your motivation to act upon climate is from fear, from fear from the future?
1: Um, uh a little bit, but not not mostly fear. Uh, more hope than fear, actually. I want to be of use. I, I want to have me I do it for meaning in my life. I see this as something that's very important that I can that I can affect that can help and and so the it's um I I, I think it, it's it's getting very difficult and frightening now but I I just want to have do something meaningful with my life something that I think is important and useful and helpful and um you could you could donate to. Ch- charities to help the poor people, I tended to donate to the political parties that would change the system so that the poor people had a better deal. And I could go and do service by helping people directly, but I want to do service by helping on the bigger scale how we need to change our world to survive and and make lives uh, possible and comfortable for the, the next generation. Some friends of mine call it now, this is a new trend, calling it being a good ancestor. Have you heard that? Being a good ancestor. And I want to be a good ancestor, somebody who tried their best to leave something better for the following generations. So that's my motivation. I'm not that young. I am afraid of what could happen here, but uh my my kids are self sufficient and I, I uh now they're they're adults and I, I'm not that worried for myself.
0: I like the, being a good ancestor because we are in, living in this world that we think maybe a few years ahead. Everything is so fast paced now. Being good ancestors means like taking generations more seriously. Uh, well, it's
1: First Nations wisdom here. It's common nation that you think unto the seventh generation, you know. You have to think how your actions will affect this land and this place for people coming, you know, seven generations from now. And, and keep that in mind. And it's more important than reflecting on the, the uh, crimes and guilt from generations past.
0: Now I can hear the love in your voice. And I feel many activists going back and forth from feeling fear from our future and love for our precious planet and our beautiful forest. Do you think you act differently when you are motivated from love? And when you're motivated by fear? I act out of
1: anger a a, a lot too. I have an old habit of finding the villain and saying, look what they're doing to us. Um, And we've just got to make them stop doing this. And so that's about half of what I say is from that negative point of view. Maybe more. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm... I'm, I'm actually quite bitter as well, well I, don't, I don't know, do you as you pointed out, things have just been getting steadily worse and the forces and the people who have made that happen, their legacy is a, a dreadful thing um, for their children and my children. And I'm looking at Calgary. I, 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 I'm looking specifically at Calgary. And that place needs to turn around. It needs to give its cultural head a shake, uh, I think. And I have, my, my oldest friend is a, a, an oil field geologist who worked all his life in the oil patch out of Calgary. And he's lost more money in his life than I've earned in my entire life. But I can't hate him for what he's done, but it, it, he's, he certainly has been on the wrong side of the equation and continues to be uh, on the wrong side of the equ- equation and denying climate change uh, and so on. So I, I think he's wrong and I think what he does is harmful, but I do not hate him for it. I cannot, <laughs> it's, it's difficult. One time his younger brother who I hadn't seen for many years and another old friend, these are friends from my childhood, from my high school days. They came out to visit and I took them to paddle on Snow Can Lake he was paddling in one canoe as I was paddling in the adjacent canoe and, and our, our two buddies were there as well and they fi- we were ta- arguing back and forth they finally said you guys why don't you just hit each other with the paddles you know just cut it out just get it over with <laughs> it gets kind of uh repetitive I think we both get repetitive and eventually we go do you know what kind of tree this is he knows a lot about trees and things and so we talk about something else <coughs>
0: But can you say more about his denial and and is he justifying what he's doing or or do you blame him for what he do what exactly do you kind of argue about He
1: he has he has a full range of climate de- change denial strategies and he he will bounce between them So the first one is he says the plants uh he has a, he's also quite learned about uh geological history. And he said, we're at a low point of CO2 in our atmosphere in 4 billion range of the planet's history. Our CO2 is now much lower than it's been many times in the past. He says, if we get our CO2 any lower, we're going to starve the plants uh, off the planet, he says. And uh, (laughs) so as much as I explained to him, well, that may be true, but we can't be adjusting the CO2 by massive uh, proportions in, in 100 and 200 years, it, it's too rapid a swing and will cause too huge a disruption to the biological systems that we depend on to survive. And it's going to cause a, 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 a great extinction event and we could be part of it. And no, 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 you can't go with that, then he'll say, well, what about, what about an asteroid? An, astro- an asteroid could hit the planet yes that's true we could all die that way it's true the sun could go no yes or what if what if the sun um what if the sun puts out an electromagnetic pulse all of a sudden and just shuts down all our electronics that that will cause yes this is true yes these are possibilities yes i i think we should try and uh, protect from them as much as we can as well but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we should ignore this imminent danger to our our society and our lives it's a bad logic and so I, there's many he's made his living in the field he it's impossible for him to believe that what he's been doing has been harmful for the world and for everybody all his life that's a that's too big a guilt to put on one person and it's not his fault and he doesn't he, he can't wear it and he he, he can't face it and it's not his alone. It's not his fault. You, you know, you can't blame people who need a job from working in the tar sands. And you can't blame people who work in nuclear weapons factories for working in nuclear weapons factories. But you can say, please, let us help you find something less harmful to do. <laughs> you know? Uh,
0: yeah. So you, what you're saying, you feel that he doesn't want to feel the guilt? And he doesn't want to admit that he's doing something wrong. So therefore, he's justifying everything that's happening outside, in the, on a big scale, about climate. Yes, is yes. this what happens it, for him?
1: He he turns his quite formidable intellect very keenly on rationalization of the oil industry, and and he he doesn't do it alone. I mean, he does it around the the, the water stand at his office. He does it with all his colleagues. He lives in a culture there that they all tell them, each other these kinds of things all the time uh, to keep their spirits up. He's not in a vacuum. Right. None of us are. I heard an interesting thing about the response people have to the pandemic, how seriously they find it, how seriously they treat it, all depends on what the people around them are doing and how they're taking it. And if people are going, ah, oh, you know, it's not that big a problem, then they're probably going to go, oh, it's no, no, it's not that big a problem
0: sounds like a herd mentality
1: like the woody allen movie he he was a chameleon woody allen played this chameleon wherever he went he just absorbed into the culture that that he was there at one point he was playing clarinet in a in a black jazz band and as he played the clarinet his skin got darker (laughs) ridiculous scene in the movie (laughs) but we all we're all like that we all just reflect and absorb and blend in with the people who we talk to and associate with. And uh, that is the main influence on how we think and, and how we behave.
0: I'm very interested in like this av- avoiding guilt because it's also connect to avoiding talking about climate change, right? Like it's part of the reason we also avoid talking about it, even between a friend degree agree with, uh, there is a problem. We are all part of, of having some of those, of this guilt. Can you say well, more
1: about I, that? It, it's true. Sometimes I worry that I'm not very good company, because I'm I'm kind of a, a bad news bear. You know, don't talk to him. He's just a downer. He'll just tell you that the world's going to hell. Uh, you know, avoid that guy. He's he's toxic. Um, and it's true. I mean, uh, we can't. We uh, nobody. I don't. I don't. Think about this all the time. I put it out of my mind a lot, and I and I take breaks. Um, and we have to. I, I I play with my grandchildren on FaceTime. I ride my bicycle. I'll go for a walk in the forest. And not even think about tomorrow, you know, because because we can't do it all the time. I know that I. You, yeah, you, you you give my give my the thread on the back of my back a quick turn and wind me up and i'll just spew for 20 minutes about these things and uh most people don't want to listen as long as you you're listening yael
0: i know but we all have it inside we all we all struggle with it and we don't know how to talk about it no and i'm trying to see if we can talk about it in a different way that we can actually find a way to talk about it without feeling the guilt if there was a way that we can talk about it without placing guilt and you, helping people you, feel less guilty, I think I'm. I'm or I, not I, guilty. I feel.
1: Uh, I drive a car. I, my furnace burning natural gas just kicked in. It's keeping me warm right now. Um, uh, I'm part of the problem, um, and uh, it has to change. And I'm trying to change, but not very fast. So we're all in that spot and we can't beat ourselves up all the time about it. Uh, It just is, we can't, we can't do it. So sometimes the way I like to look at it, and I sort of touched on this before is I like to think that I'm in a, a big collective canoe, like a big Haida Gwaii canoe, a big boat, ocean going boat with 30 paddlers. And I'm just one of the paddlers and I can paddle I can't steer the whole boat. I can't make the whole boat go. If it's just up to, all up to me, the boat's gonna get tossed in the waves and sunk because I, I can't do it alone. But they can't do it without me either. It takes all of us to put on our paddles. And so I'm just one paddle. And when I, when I think about it that way, I'm reassured. I think I, I, am, I am paddling. I'm, I'm paddling just about as hard as I can. And that's what I like to do. Oh, oh Explain uh, the well, metaphor. well uh,
0: when, I didn't get it. <laughs>
1: uh, when you're in a collective canoe, it takes everybody <laughs> paddling together to keep the canoe going. And one of us alone cannot paddle it, but all together we can. So, I have to see myself as just uh, one person in a, a much larger collective effort moving towards the inevitable arc of justice, you know, uh, that Martin Luth- Luther King talks about the arc of justice and hope that that's the case okay but but um well if it's not it's not it's been it's been a good ride we've had a nice paddle
0: yeah i mean yeah (laughs) (laughs) we did what we can because sometimes it feels like we missed the time we missed our threshold
1: we're in rear guard action now yeah if if we started taking action when i was 16 we would have We would have had a really good chance of creating or retaining the Garden of Eden that we were born into. We are physiologically evolved to live on this planet. It is the cradle uh, that is we are just absolutely designed for and uh, all we had to do was preserve it but no 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 we we couldn't do that. So um, yeah and I often find here in Canada that There's a lack of imagination about how much things can change. And I I touched on this before, but there's a real lack of imagination. People think, oh, that could never happen. Or we just can't imagine that, that, uh, you know, a forest fire could burn down whole cities, you know, and then it does, and it's unthinkable. But I I think we have to look ahead a little bit and think, you know, things are not inevitably getting better. I, I used to believe in progress, in some ways I still do, but I, I really, really believe that things are always getting better. And, um, that was part of my core belief structure when I was a young person was that if we worked at it, things would get better. And, um, that hasn't proven to be the case. They've gotten fancier and gimmickier and richer and faster and uh, you faster. know more exciting. But uh, better? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I think Canadians are less secure now. I know Canadians are less secure now than when I was 16. I know we're far less secure. And I know my kids have way more anxiety than I did when I was 16. You know? It's, it's really hard.
0: We need to define what is better.
1: I don't think it's so hard to define. I, I don't think it's that hard to define. I think what is better is security for our families. Living in peace is better. And to live in peace with our environment, we've got to make some changes. And But if we can live in peace, people who are left to live in peace are happy, are naturally happy. But once things are threatened and change, change menaces, then there's anxiety. But uh, we've just come through generations of local peace here in Western Canada, generations of it. And people are generally pretty happy about it. And we all assume it's going to keep going. You know, we all think, well, this is the way it's going to go in the future too. Make plans for a career, find out how you're going to get ahead. The, the truth of the matter is our security and that happiness can be achieved with far less production, far less work, far less acting on the environment, far less growth, far less change. Can, uh, we need a great contraction in our economy and our impact on the world. But we can be that means less work for us. We can do it easier. we can coast. For a couple of years, I lived in Nigeria. I taught at a boys' secondary school on the edge of the savannah in a small town in Nigeria. I was a terrible teacher. It was fun for me and kind of a, a good educational experience for me, less useful for my students. I, I was a volunteer, a CUSO volunteer, but, it was, but I, I saw the way these people lived. And the way the men and women lived was quite different. The women worked very, very hard, the men less so. And the village I lived in was mostly subsistence farmers. The people uh, ate what they grew. And and they went to market and traded what they grew for things other people did. And it was a very simple life. Um, But they had lots of time for their kids. Lots of times to sit in front of their house and talk to their neighbors and gossip. They were incredible gossips. That was the number one art in in the village was uh, talking and, and being humorous and funny. And that was the most important thing for everybody was to, to be witty and funny and, and tease the white guy as much as you could too. So I, I kind of looked at them and I compared this subsistence farmer who's ra- raising his family and, and her family, and they work hard and they they don't have a lot. And I thought about their happiness quotient. And I thought, I think about... I compare it to the, the prairie farmers that my uncles and aunts were and my ancestors were. And they were mortgaged to the hilt uh, to buy a combine. They owed their, their farms to the banks. Uh, they had debts with the chemical companies. Um, these days, small farmers have a job. They're welding a pipeline or, or driving a truck in the oil industry or hammering nails somewhere so that they can keep their farm going. And I thought about, well, who's the happier farmer here? We think that this person who's a farmer in Southern Saskatchewan with, with a satellite dish television and three cars and a, a trip to Cuba in the winter time is happier. But I thought, you know, these people who have time with their kids and, and life here is happier. It, but they, it's also a little more vulnerable to, to um, things like drought. Uh, if the crops failed badly it could be very it does get very serious there's there's not a lot of cushion there security our material security providing everybody with not frills and riches but good food good shelter uh, a secure surrounding Um, let's get that right let's get that right and then people can be happy and they can try and restrain themselves from paving everything and Remodeling the forests and the mountains, which we always like to do. We're creative, constructive doozers.
0: It reminds me, in the US Constitution, we have the right to pursue happiness, but not the right to be happy. So we're pursuing lots of trucks and bigger house and and then bigger house. And maybe, you know, we pursue. And this is uh, the whole model of the economy is growth. The model is gross. It's never, it was never happiness. It was never one of the measurements of a no, good it's society. It's a very materialist
1: and consumer oriented culture. And uh, it's quite difficult to resist. Um, I like digital cameras. I have five of them, I think. I, every now and then, every couple of years or so, I go, oh, that one's so much better than the one <sighs> I'm using now. And I splurge and I, I spend a bunch of money and buy a new digital camera that maybe is a little better than the phone in my pocket, you know. We're all trained, we've been trained this way. Get a better one, get a better one. Yeah, yeah.
0: We've been trained to want more things. We believe improvement in life means having better stuff, bigger house, better camera, better computer, and so on. We've been brainwashed for that, because that's what moves the economy. Economy is about growth. And and maybe the differentiation is that it's really fine and good to want better lives and having more, but many times it doesn't do that. And many times we lie ourselves by having more stuff or buying a bigger house and we don't feel more happy. And we keep pursuing the happiness to be outside of us. So how can we differentiate between, you know, those things that really fill our heart and good for us to those things that are faking that?
1: I set myself goals. What do you um, think? I, I kind of, my guideline is how little money I can live on in a year. And I think... If i I had a good job with union, I was earning almost a hundred thousand dollars a year and my spending went way up as well. And, and then I retired early. I quit that job when I didn't have to. Uh, and I said, I want to live on a lot less money every year. I want to simplify. I want time, not, not material possessions, not vacations. I want time to do whatever I want. Time to hike and be with my kids and read books sometimes, but mostly time to sit in front of the computer, I guess, is what I wanted. I wanted time for myself rather than, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Are you happier? I'm really struggling in in the pandemic now in a tiny bubble, and uh, I'm not very happy right now. Um, This is a hard time for me. I dreamt last night. <laughs> I dreamt last night that I was putting to sh- a show together with with three or four of my kids, and and there was a cow, a pet cow. We were trying to make a movie or a little bit of a theater piece, and it was really difficult. But I was struggling. But I was doing it with my kids, and now my kids are far away, and so I dream about them often, and I dream about them when they were young often, and uh, so. It's a hard time. Yeah. I can't go and see them now.
0: And now you can see them.
1: Yeah. I have a grandson I've never seen. Yeah. That's small potatoes. I mean, compared to, so what's the mother? I get to talk to my grandchildren on FaceTime. So he's learning to crawl. I've I've seen him do it. So (laughs) I, I'm not suffering that bad uh, compared to most people, but it's funny. I was just thinking the other day, I was thinking it's going to get worse before it gets better here. We're in for a difficult uh, third wave and the next three months are going to be hard. And I said, oh, three months. Well, three months is peanuts, peanuts. There was a a fellow I know who who lived in the basement of a church for five years when he tried to get settled in Canada. And I'm concerned about three months. Well, you know, small potatoes. You, I'm yeah. so spoiled. I expect the world to be wonderful every week and every day. But I've got three more months of reduced social contact. Yeah, that I that I have to do. That it's what we have Isolation. to do. Isolation. And it's it's just hard to cope yeah. with. But um, in compared to being uh, sent to Auschwitz or or in a cholera pandemic in Brazil or. Or anything else, it's small, small pain. Small, small, small pain.:
0: When you put it in a context of other things that are big that happened in the world, it's small, but we tend to view ourselves at the moment we view ourselves. It's hard for us to see ourselves in, in a bigger context and end the moment if it's hard. It's very hard, and it's, 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 you even forget how you were two days ago, maybe two days ago was fine but you forget about it because in the moment, this is how we view ourselves. So it doesn't matter. And, and it's not good to shut this down. Like to say, it's good to take, to, to look at the perspective, at the bigger perspective, if it's helpful, but it's also good to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sad now and I just let myself to maybe hear some sad, sad uh, music or something that can, Uh, you know, uh, so you don't suppress your emotions at that time
1: in my own pain. Um. It's I, I don't do it well. I, I, I find it hard. I will distract myself with a cause or something rather than sit in a painful place for any length of time at all. And uh, my Buddhist training and teaching suggests you have to sit with your pain. And and with the discomfort, you have to sit with it because it will always be With the be discomfort, there. yes. <laughs> so you, you have to... Uh, learn how to be with it and and um, I think that's we all we all do that all our lives we just gradually learn to be a little bit more accepting of the reality of the painful parts of our lives but I'm not good at it (laughs) yeah
0: yeah So you're talking about the difficulty to stay with the discomfort And I can't help but thinking about your friend that has a hard time staying with his discomfort, with feeling guilty about his work and what he does. And I wonder what a conversation between you two looks like if you were to talk about that authentically and not about the details and geology and CO2 in the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I try and comfort myself in saying a pain is something that's done nicely in small doses, <laughs> a little bit at a time and then, and then take a break and then maybe a little bit more. And, and I think it, it, there's some truth in that if you can, um, yeah. And, and connecting. Truth in what? And, and, and connecting with somebody else. If you start speaking from an authentic place about what you are frightened or hurting about that invites someone else to speak from an authentic place about what troubles them. And then you're, then you're at common ground and you find out I I'm worried about my kid's future and they, they're worried about their kid's future, you know, and then we can go, well, yeah, yeah, I can see how that's worrisome, you know, for you, it's worrisome for me. Yeah. I I agree Yes. my 21 year old daughter said to me, she said, I'm tired of adversarial discussions. It's, it's sort of like our Canadian legal justice system where you've got two people arguing to who can win, you know, and I don't want to be in a conversation, a, a patriarchal conversation where the object is to win. I'm not interested in that anymore. Yeah. I want a collaborative conversation where I can talk about me, you can talk about you, and, and we can find common ground and mutuality. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the debate form, an adversarial conversation. I'm always up for an argument. <laughs> I'm always up for an adversarial <laughs> kind of discussion, but they're, they're not usually constructive, really. It's not a, a useful thing. And she said, the first thing you do is find something that you can agree upon. You know and i and i've I actually have taken to doing that when i talk to other people about climate and so on if they say something that i that i agree upon even even if they say i want the best for my kid i go i can see that that's that's good i understand yes of course you do i do too yes yeah, yeah.
0: and then we can talk about what is best and in the bigger picture Some, of what is best. Sometimes you right? can,
1: sometimes you can't, you know, it doesn't matter, but the straight adversarial conversation is just, doesn't really go anywhere, you know? So that, yeah. that conversation has a possibility to go somewhere. It may not, you know, if you start talking about what is best, you, you're going to loop back into triggering their defenses and their mechanisms saying, I've got to do what I have to do to provide the best for my kid. And that means getting oil out of the ground.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was
1: fun. It's quite enjoyable spouting. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's been interesting. It's been, it's, it was very interesting to be interviewed by you.
0: What is the experience? Um,
1: just of being heard and it's very nice. It's very comforting just to have been heard about some of my fears and some of my doubts, and some of my beliefs. Just, it really feels nice just to be heard, actually. It's very therapeutic for me